everybody, before we get started, we have a couple of live shows to announce. First, April 27th to 29th, 2018, we will be at Universal Fan Con in Baltimore, Maryland. Our exact schedule for that show is still in the works, but this will include a live show, and our listeners can get discounted tickets using the offer code HISTORY. And for all the folks who have asked us to do a show in the Boston area, of which there have been many, we are finally on the way with a show in Quincy at Adams National Historical Park on Sunday, July 8th at 2 p.m. That one is an outdoor show. It will happen rain or shine. And we also have more appearances that we'll be announcing soon, as well as more details about both of these shows. We will put that all at our website also at mistinhistory.com. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, we haven't talked about ancient history in a little while. Not not in super recently, no. No, I was looking at our recent episodes and I was like, you know where we haven't gone? Real far back. Uh, So it seemed like a good time. Uh, And today's topic is an ancient city that managed to survive and even thrive through a series of wars, changes in rulers, earthquakes, and floods. And it was also home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're talking about the city of Ephesus, and we're going to do it in three parts. So first, we'll cover a general and very non-comprehensive history of the city to get a sense of how it survived for so long and then stopped being a really important port. And then we're going to talk about a few points of interest within it. Again, not a comprehensive list. And then last, we will get to its most famous of structures, the Temple of Artemis. I am glad that you have chosen this for a podcast episode, because literally all I knew about Ephesus was that uh, the Ephesians were a book of the Bible, and not even... Not even a book of the Bible that gets, uh, at least in the the church that I grew up in, not one that gets a lot of attention in in sermons. Yeah, and just for um, expectations management, we're going to talk about it in relation to Christianity a little bit, but not a whole lot. So if you're like, ooh, this will explain and delve into the, the biblical story around it, we're not going super deep there. Just know that up front. So Ephesus sits near the modern day town of Salchuk in Turkey. There's also been some location shifting of its position due to ongoing changes in the delta of the Kester River and outright moving of the entire city. Yeah, we'll talk about that move coming up. And while Ephesus is generally identified as an Ionian Greek city, before the Ionians, it was inhabited by the Carians and the Lelegians, peoples whose cultures predated the Ionians. The true history of the founding of the city is really lost to time. Part of that is because it was re-founded multiple times, but there are legends about it. One version of the story suggests that a tribe of Amazons founded the city, and according to that legend, the name meant City of the Mother Goddess. The second founding story of Ephesus makes it founded at the hands of Ionian prince Androclos, son of King Kodros of Athens. And this is really the point where Ephesus assumes its Ionian identity that will define it pretty much for the rest of history. So according to the story of Androclos, an oracle had told him that a fish and a boar would show him the place for his people. And at the time, in the 11th century BCE, he was leading a group of his people to find a new settlement. 
And the story goes that while he was preparing a fish over an open fire, a stray spark ignited a nearby copse of bushes and a boar ran out. And Androklos believed that the oracle's prophecy was playing out, and so he founded Ephesus on the site of that bush. During the 600s BCE, Ephesus was attacked by Sumerians, uh, although the city made it through that skirmish. But a lot of the surrounding area was destroyed in the fighting. Beginning in 560 BCE, Ephesus was ruled by the Lydian king Croesus, who ran Ephesus as a sort of feudal state once he gained power. Croesus was incredibly wealthy, and he spread that wealth around, including making pretty beneficial improvements to his new territory. One of his works during this time, ruling over Ephesus, was to rebuild the city's Temple of Artemis. We're going to talk more about the temple in a little bit. But this was a massive undertaking and also very expensive. Under the rule of Croesus, Ephesus flourished, and it emerged as a wealthy city, one of education, sophistication, and international business, thanks to its location on the Mediterranean Sea. Ephesus and the entirety of the Anatolian Peninsula, known more commonly as Asia Minor and today as a large section of the country Turkey, fell under a different rule when Cyrus of Persia defeated Croesus in 546 or 547 BCE. That year varies a little depending on what source you're looking at. But this did not spell doom for Ephesus. The city continued to flourish, and it maintained a pretty neutral position in the politics which surrounded it. This neutrality was partially because Ephesus was a trade port. All kinds of people needed to trade there, so it made sense to be neutral, and it made sense to all the interested parties to avoid destroying it, lest they also damage their own economies. Even so, the city was embroiled in conflict for decades, even though a lot of times it was tangential to that. When the Hellenic people of Attica, known as the Ionians, challenged Persian rule in the Ionian Revolt, Ephesus was used as a military base. And this revolt lasted for six years, from 499 to 493 BCE. And it was the start of a series of conflicts which are grouped together under the umbrella of the Greco-Persian Wars. And Ephesus wasn't central to all of that conflict, though the city was involved in a number of battles. And it still seemed to hold a sort of middle ground in the battle between Greece and Persia as it maintained good relations with the Persians throughout the Greco-Persian Wars. In 334 BCE, Ephesus once again switched rulers as Alexander the Great defeated the Persians, who had been controlling Asia Minor for two centuries at that point. One of the ways in which Alexander gained favor in the places that he came to rule was by not forcing them to adopt Greek customs. He would introduce Greek culture to the lands that he conquered, but the inhabitants could continue their old ways as long as they liked, and so Ephesus continued a relatively peaceful and prosperous existence. This actually reminds me of how the Inca Empire handled things in the episode that we did recently on that subject. Yes, uh, it's very similar. After Alexander died, he was succeeded by one of his generals, Lysimachus. And the actual transition of power was quite complicated, and it involved decades of infighting and power struggles among Alexander's military commanders, which came to be known as the Wars of the Diadochi or the Wars of Succession. And that all happened because when Alexander the Great died on June 10th, 323 BCE, that was a surprise. Then there was not a clear heir to all of the various kingdoms that Alexander was ruling over. But eventually, Lysimachus gained power over the city of Ephesus, and he started a renewal project to revitalize the city, which also included moving it about two miles, or 3.2 kilometers, 
He renamed the city for his second wife, Arsinoe, christening it Arsinia. And the revitalization work that Lysimachus catalyzed was really quite impressive. There was a new harbor built. There were defensive walls. But the people who had been living in Ephesus were not really willing to move from the places that they had been living just because a new ruler and an outsider at that decided that the city would be better off a couple miles away. But Lysimachus was really insistent about his new city. He was so insistent that he had the sewage system of Ephesus blocked up to force the citizens to move by making their homes uninhabitable. I mean, it's horrifying, but there is part of me that kind of respects, like, the level of commitment at that point. Like, fine, I'm, I'm like, just gonna... Good strategy, city dude. with sewage, yeah. <laughs> good stra- <laughs> it's gross strategy, but, I mean, that clearly would work. Yeah. In 281 BC, Lysimachus was defeated by Seleucus I, who had also accompanied Alexander the Great on his march into Asia. The name Arsinia was abandoned, and Ephesus was refounded once more as Ephesus and regained its reputation as an important port city. But it did not move again. It stayed in that place Lysimachus put it. Next up, we'll talk about the transition that the city went through when it became part of the Roman Empire. But first, we will take a quick break for a word from a sponsor. The next phase of the city's history was under Roman rule. It was actually bequeathed to the Roman Empire by the king of Pergamon, Attalos, upon his death in 129 BCE. Under Roman rule, Ephesus once again experienced a period of growth and prosperity. And while it was under the reign of Caesar Augustus, many structures were built that can still be seen in the ruins of Ephesus today, including its very impressive amphitheater, which we'll talk about more in a moment. And in the middle of the first century BCE, a new business district was built to accommodate the city's bustling trade industry. In the year 17, much of the city was damaged in an earthquake, but... It once again recovered and rebuilt its commerce industry, eventually becoming one of Asia's most vital trade hubs. And in the Common Era, Ephesus became a significant location for Christianity. Among other stories connected to prominent biblical figures that also associate with the city, St. John and Mary, the mother of Jesus, are said to have made Ephesus their home late in life. The House of the Virgin Mary has been a pilgrimage site since the 5th century. And of course, there is also a book in the Bible titled Ephesians, which is about the Apostle Paul's time there. Another significant Christian religious story attached to Ephesus is the Cave of the Seven Sleepers. So according to this tale, seven Christian saints were confined within a wall as punishment during the pre-Christian era of Ephesus's history. They're said to have emerged 200 years later when the city had converted. And much of Ephesus was destroyed by the Goths in 262. It had a great deal of difficulty recovering after that. Then in the 4th century, the Roman emperor Theodosius closed all the temples and schools in Ephesus. Social changes were also enacted, including systemic lowering of the place of women in the culture. Women had been an active part of the cultural, philosophical, and artistic life of Ephesus for centuries, but after this, they were forbidden to create art on their own, and they were also not allowed to teach any men. As a final blow to the city's history and cultural roots, Artemis was erased as a deity in every way possible. But as the city was officially converted to Christianity and away from the worship of Artemis, its era of prosperity as a capital of commerce was also waning. 
the harbor had really degraded due to the shifting silt that had been deposited there over the centuries. And in the 6th century, Ephesus was already in a state of deep decline when an earthquake struck. The harbor was damaged even further, and the once great city became something of a ghost town, although it was not at this point entirely deserted. Arab invasions in the 7th and 8th centuries caused most of the remaining citizens to leave and find homes elsewhere. After a very brief upswing in the 14th century, Ephesus became part of the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century. But the city, which once boasted more than 300,000 residents and inhabited a pivotal role in Mediterranean trade, couldn't really offer stability or commerce, and it was completely abandoned within decades. Yeah, by the end of the 15th century, no one lived there anymore. Now we're going to shift a little bit and talk about a few of the points of interest within the city. Uh, Domitian was the Roman emperor from the years 81 to 96, and there is actually a temple built in his honor in Ephesus. It's a constructed terrace, so it's not a naturally occurring terrace. Uh, It is 50 meters, that's 164 feet, by 100 meters, that's 328 feet, and the northern side of it was accessed by stairs that still remain today. And the Temple of Domitian had 13 columns running along each of its sides and then eight columns on the shorter sides. The interior of the temple had another four columns. The terrace also had a lower-level substructure, and that housed shops and storage spaces. All that's left of it today is the foundation. The Library of Celsus is one of the most striking structures remaining in the ruins of Ephesus today. If you Google Ephesus, the image that often comes up is the front of this library's ruins. Its facade, which is more intact than most of the ruins and sits atop a flight of steps, features statues of the four virtues. So those are Sophia, who represented wisdom, Arete, which represents goodness, Enoia, which represents thought, and Episteme, representing knowledge. And the statues on site today are actually copies. The originals are housed in the Ephesus Museum in Vienna. Uh, Austria has long had archaeological interests in Ephesus, and they have a really impressive museum. The library was able to house 12,000 scrolls, and it was carefully designed with a gap between the inner and outer walls to keep moisture from getting to these stored texts. The theater at Ephesus, we referenced the amphitheater earlier, is another really impressive structure. It was built to hold as many as 24,000 people on a three-level design with each level containing 22 rows. The seating area forms roughly two-thirds of a circle, and construction of the amphitheater began under the rule of Roman Emperor Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54, but it wasn't completed until the reign of Trajan, who held power from the years 98 to 117. The stage portion actually appears to have built before that Roman expansion into a full-scale auditorium, though. The Temple of Hadrian has also been treated well by time in comparison to a lot of the ruins of Ephesus. It was damaged in an earthquake in the 4th century, but a restoration happened, and additions were made to the temple at that time. These included a relief frieze depicting the founding of the city. Hadrian ruled after Trajan, and it appears that the temple in his honor at Ephesus was completed and dedicated during his lifetime. This is a little early for us to jump to another sponsor break, but I want to keep this next section together. So coming up, we are going to talk about the crown jewel of Ephesus, the Temple of Artemis. But first, we're going to have this little break. So we have 
mentioned the Temple of Artemis numerous times in this episode, and that's because it is important enough on its own that it really merits a closer look. It is, as we've said, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And like the city of Ephesus itself, it fell and was rebuilt multiple times. Artemis was a very popular Greek deity, the goddess of the hunt, the moon, chastity, childbirth, and nature in the forms of both flora and fauna. She was Apollo's twin sister, so her parents were Zeus and Leto. Zeus's wife, of course, was Hera. And when Artemis was born, her mother was in hiding on an island away from Hera's wrath. In Roman mythology, Artemis's counterpart is Diana. And sometimes when you're looking at pictures of this, that's how it will be labeled. <laughs> yes, for sure. And it actually comes up referenced as Diana in a piece I'm going to read in just a moment. So, writing in 1877, a man named John Turtle Wood, who had sought out the ruins of Ephesus in the 1860s and collected numerous artifacts from the site for the British Museum, said the following, quote, The ritual of the worship of Artemis is unknown, but we gather some facts from ancient writers which enlighten us on the subject to a certain degree, and especially in reference to the sacrifice. For these, it is fair to conclude that beasts were slaughtered at altars in front of temples, and that small portions of the flesh and perhaps basins of the blood were carried into the temple and offered to the deity upon the great altar, the flesh being put upon some small pieces of wood with which a fire was made, and if the smoke ascended freely, the offering was supposed to be accepted. And here we have one of several reasons for concluding that temples were in part absolutely open to the sky. The Temple of Artemis, in its earliest forms, went through three phases of construction between the 8th and 6th centuries BCE. Some of these were required because of flood damage. When King Croesus rebuilt the temple, he spared no expense, and the result was a structure larger than any other in the archaic Greek world, constructed entirely from marble. This was four times the size of the Parthenon. Pliny the Elder described the temple in his writing, quote, the most wonderful monument of Grecian magnificence and one that merits our genuine admiration is the Temple of Diana at Ephesus, which took 120 years in building, a work in which all Asia joined. A marshy soil was selected for its site in order that it might not suffer from earthquakes or the chasms which they produce. On the other hand, again, that the foundation of so vast a pile might not have to rest upon a loose and shifting bed, layers of trodden charcoal were placed beneath, with fleeces covered with wool upon the top of them. The entire length of the temple is 425 feet and the breadth 225. The columns are 127 in number and 60 feet in height, each of them presented by a different king. In 356 BCE, the Temple of Artemis burned to the ground. There are varying beliefs as to what actually caused the fire. While it's often attributed to a madman, the story is a lot deeper than that. The arsonist, Herostratus, is said to have hoped that if he created a cataclysmic event, he would be remembered eternally. He was sentenced to die for his crime, and it was forbidden to even say his name. But it was noted, and later writers started to use it again when describing the event. Yeah, that's one of those stories that gets really shifty and has a lot of different versions. Uh, some involve Alexander the Great, which is going to come up in a moment. Um, and just as a quick aside on how a marble structure can burn down, because I was describing this to a friend and they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> um 
generally, so the roof would have been made of wood, and because that's a marble roof would have been so heavy as to be impractical. And also, when exposed to intense heat, the outer portions of marble would begin to crack and crumble. So a marble structure can quickly lose all integrity and collapse in a fire. Just in case you were curious how that worked. When Alexander the Great entered Ephesus after conquering the Persians, he's said to have noticed that the temple hadn't been rebuilt yet, and he offered to do so. But the people of Ephesus declined this offer, saying it was unfit for a god to build a temple to another god. A lot of people were, at that point, believing that Alexander was a demigod, the son of Zeus. He was born on July 20th of 356 BCE, and that coincided with the burning of the Temple of Artemis. So it was believed that when the temple burned, Artemis was assisting in Alexander's delivery. Yeah, she was not there to protect her temple. She was gone. Sometimes this gets wrapped up with the story of um, Herostratus, and suggests, like, I saw one version that was clearly very, very apocryphal and kind of a modern thing that I think conflated some things uh, that suggested that somehow Herostratus knew that Alexander was being born and that as the son of the um, uh, Macedonian King Philip II, he wanted to somehow also have a play in that momentous moment that he would be remembered for, which was the burning of the temple, it gets really, um, the layer there is a little weird and I feel like a little forced, but I don't I don't know the gent, and he was erased largely from history, so no one has his account. Uh, it did take more than a century to rebuild the temple after it burned, and the new version retained the dimensions of the previous, but the base of that, that second version it's actually not the second version, but the second version of that architecture was built higher. And then when the Goths attacked Ephesus in the third century, which we mentioned earlier, the temple was burned again. But the details of the level of repair or restoration that were performed after that are unknown, although we do know the temple existed after that. We mentioned earlier that Theodosius closed all the temples, and that took place in 391, and that included the Temple of Artemis. Eventually, whatever was left of the temple was completely destroyed, and its broken pieces were carried away to use in other building projects. Yeah, some versions of that story indicate that those pieces were carried away to make churches, uh, so it becomes that ongoing sort of battle of religious culture. Uh, one column still stands at the site today, although I can't really say still because it's actually reconstructed from fragments that were found since the site was rediscovered in the second half of the 19th century. The, that gentleman uh, whose piece I read earlier is one of the, the men credited with refinding Ephesus. The base of another column has also been reconstructed, but it is a much smaller piece. Like, it's basically just the base and a tiny piece of column. In 2015, Ephesus was added to the UNESCO World Heritage Site list, and it's also a tourist attraction. You can visit, you can walk among the ruins yourself, and you can stand in the space where the Temple of Artemis used to be. Yeah, you can also walk right up to that amazing amphitheater, which to me looks like a mind-blowing experience. Might be on my bucket list now. Do you have some listener mail for us? I do, and it's really exciting and fun. Because uh, it's gifts, which were spoiled and... I never feel like we deserve half of the lovely gifts we get because they're too nice. This is from our listener, Lisa, and it comes to the letter. It says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm a huge fan of the show. I almost like my awful commute because it gives me the perfect chance to enjoy your podcast a few times per week. 
I visited Japan a little while ago, and during my somewhat unrestrained stationary shopping sprees, I found that it was impossible to pick just one postcard for you ladies. Therefore, I've enclosed a few postcards for each of you. I think Holly will enjoy the ones depicting pretty kimono, which is why I've enclosed the stickers as well. She sent beautiful kimono stickers, and let me just tell you, Stickers are the key to my heart. I never outgrew that face. Uh, <laughs> uh, and said that if either of you are Totoro fans, the cat bus card may be amusing too. I think I speak for both of us when I say we do both love Totoro. Um, the latter is from the spectacular Ghibli Museum and depicts the enormous plush model of the cat bus that's in the basement of the museum. It's delightful watching little kids climbing on and crawling through the cat bus model, but it's still a bummer that I was too grown to do so. She also sent us copies of a biography of Gypsy Rose Lee as a request for that one. That's actually been on my list for a while. Um, and she says, uh, anyway, thank you for making such a wonderful show. I especially love the Edward Gorey episode. You're right. The intro he drew for Masterpiece is many people's introduction to his work. In fact, that sequence is one of the first things I recall watching in my childhood, and my sister and I loved imitating the Wailing Lady in the blue dress. Cheers, Lisa. Lisa, this is amazing. I, Tracy will be so excited next time she's here in the Atlanta office to open her, her treats. Uh, Lisa sort of set them out in two different parcels for each of us. So I did not open yours. Okay. Uh, so I have mine, which have some of the most beautiful cards. One is all kitties, and I love it. And there are beautiful kimono pieces and this cat bus card, which I am also in love with. I am excited um, to see your cat bus card. You have a cat bus card, too. Oh, yay! I'm pretty sure you do. Okay. Um, so you will see both. I love and the I'm, cat bus. Everybody loves cat bus. I it's wish I funny. were small enough to climb around inside a life-size cat bus. I do, too, although I worry that one in a public space, even though I'm sure children in Japan are very tidy, um, they're still children, and they might come with germs. <laughs> <laughs> and furry things aren't necessarily the easiest to sanitize. Right. that's my thinking. But I bet it's very tidy and clean. I don't want to disparage the cat bus exhibit. Uh, if you would like to write us... So first, before I say that, thank you, thank you again, Lisa. It was such a delight to open that parcel today. There's been, uh, you know, we... <laughs> weird things going on with us and it's been a little bit stressful with some of our uh office software and so it was lovely for us to have like this nice thing to open and delight in so if you would like to write to us you may do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com you can also reach out to us across the spectrum of social media as missed in history and mistinhistory.com is our website where an archive of every episode of the show that has ever existed can be found as well as show notes and references for any of the shows that tracy and i have worked on so come on and visit us and play in the history pond at mistinhistory.com For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 